Welcome to episode 387 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we feature a grand conversation with Rabbi Michael Pollack. He's the founder of the political activism group March on Harrisburg, and we discuss his journey idealism into reality, corruption, transcending barriers, single-issue voters, Iron Mike Tyson, money as speech, public trust in the government, Don Quixote, compassion, heroes, and marching on. A grand conversation with Rabbi Michael Pollack this week. We also have an EWSA titled Nation Sublime, and we share an excerpt from the Frank Capra 1939 classic film, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, featuring James Stewart and Jean Arthur, as well as a poem called Two Rabbits. All of this, of course, will be infused, imbued with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It is so nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 387 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours.
Nation Sublime Astute as a lamb chop sitting on a porcelain plate As much love as can be felt During a local militia's downtown parade of fear and hate These are a few of my least favorite things Sweethearts rolling together Lost wonderfully on the ground inside fields of grain Bathing naked in the warmth of kisses in a late summer rain Passion and romanticism help ease the pain. I know not what to do to reach you as I watch bikini-clad, fake-breasted women drinking white wine on boats in the Ozarks steered by pot-bellied, hairless men who seem to believe they have it all figured out. While our nation of people so much the same, yet also culturally diverse in a beautiful mosaic of humanity, is underappreciated and rarely utilized. We could harness so much experience and insight, so much wisdom and courage all arriving here, living a well-traveled story through miles physical, depths spiritual, so thoroughly immersed. There is a glory deep and dynamic that needs guidance in this secular place we all call home. We need not end up falling and burning as did our ancestors in ancient Rome. How will we, the people, seize this moment in the vast narrative of time? Will we choose a faith in goodness and pure joy that would unfurl the tightness of fear into an open nation sublime?
Hello, Rabbi Michael Pollack. Is that you? That is me. How are you doing? Good, good. Thank you for being on Troubadours and Rock On Tours. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Happy to happy to be here. Well, before we get started, if you don't mind, let me give the uh, listeners some background information. Sure. Rabbi Michael Pollack grew up in Rockville, Maryland. During his last year of rabbinical school, he founded March on Harrisburg, a group dedicated to healing our wounded democracy and restoring trust to the republic by passing anti-corruption, pro-democracy bills in Pennsylvania. March on Harrisburg lobbies, marches, and does nonviolent civil disobedience to move their bills and build an honest and productive relationship between citizens and state. Michael's hobbies include convincing politicians to not be corrupt, long marches through the Pennsylvania countryside, and sitting down in inconvenient places in the state capitol. Troubadours and Rock on Tours is happy to have on the program Rabbi Michael Pollack. Again, so nice to have you. It's so great to be here. Thank you for having me. So let's get started with, uh, I guess, how about a little bit of your personal journey? How did you get to who you are and where you are? Sure. I'll, uh, so, so I grew up in, in, uh, in the D.C. suburbs in Maryland, and I, and I grew up in very much a democratic bubble. And, and I grew up thinking when Democrats take control of the government, we're all going to be singing Kumbaya around the campfire. Life will be good. We'll solve all our problems. You know, we'll come out of the dark bush years. Things will be good. And so in 2009, uh, President Obama had been elected and I went into the political world for the first time. And they put me, sorry, I went to the, uh, to the DNC uh, as an intern and they put me right into the fundraising department. And that was a very disillusioning experience. And I kind of saw why things weren't happening that I was told were going to happen. Um, this was when the ACA was being negotiated. And all of a sudden, you know, the, the public option just gets completely scrapped. And it just happens to coincide with a whole lot of checks coming in from the health insurance industry and a whole lot of big pharma lobbyists coming by. And so that, that whole experience that summer really, really turned me away from politics uh, for a few years. And, um, you know, a little bit later in life, not that late, much later in life, a few years later, I was thinking about, you know, what to do? Uh, what should I be doing with my life? And I looked around to find who the happy people were, um, the people around me growing up who just seemed to, you know, something figured out about life, that they were asking the right questions, they were they were figuring it out. Um, and, and they were the rabbis that I knew, uh, a rabbi who, who uh, you know, I, I grew up down the street from him, and uh, another rabbi, my cousin, is, is a great ins inspiration to me. And uh, so I ended up going into rabbinical school, and once there, I just kind of kept drifting back into that political world and, and just couldn't seem to stay away. Um, some big kind of formative experiences along the way through rabbinical school. 2014, I got arrested for the first time doing a direct action around a pipeline. Um, we, we did end up stopping it, but now it's under construction again. Um, and then 2015, I uh, spent the year in the Middle East and, and really dove into the uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict and, and learned a lot about uh, conflict resolution and nonviolence. Um, and really, you know, we're all we're all living together, and we got to figure out how to do that without killing each other. Um, kind of the art of of doing that of life. Um, then came back to the states and and saw a lot of the the same problems that I'd seen in the Middle East playing out back here in our own politics. This really intense tribalism, um, disagreements about basic facts and and sets of facts. 
uh, you know, this uh, desire to, to blame the other, just a conflict. I, I came back and I saw a conflict playing out in our society. Um, and then uh, shortly after that, I, I really started diving into the, the pro-democracy work. Um, went on my first long march in 2016 from Philadelphia to D.C. And uh, yeah, March on Harrisburg came right out of that. And then here we are today. It's and been fun. Yeah, it sounds like it's been fun. And I'm sure a bit uh, uh, challenging, too, uh, because you're pushing against the the majority the grain you know the the grain you're going against in a way to to, to a certain extent um and uh i'm wondering i guess when you came back you said uh from the mid east was that during the second obama administration or mm-hmm. yeah so that would have been uh, 2015 is, is when i came back 2015 so you've been back and you've start march on harrisburg uh, you focus on on uh, Harrisburg and Pennsylvania in particular um, from Maryland. Is it how did you make the jump from Maryland to Pennsylvania? I'm, I'm curious about that. Absolutely, uh, 95 definitely helped out a lot. You know, just hopping on the highway. But um, I, I came up for rabbinical school, so I've been living in Philadelphia since uh, 2012, and so I, I stayed here. Um, you know, I, I five years in rabbinical school, and then just decided to stay afterward. Uh, you know, looking at kind of where is the greatest need, um, Pennsylvania. We in 2016 we were the fifth most corrupt state in the country. Uh, Maryland was uh, somewhere in the 40s. You know, m- much better in much better shape. And uh, I had already kind of laid down some roots here in Pennsylvania, made a lot of connections. Um, this is just the place to be if you want to do democracy work. Very, and it's a very crucial uh, state, as you as you know, uh, when it comes to the uh, presidential political uh, sort of landscape and strategy. Um, so, and and also as as uh, has been stated before, you have a weird sort of mindset politically in Pennsylvania, you have uh, Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and even the Northeast where I'm at a little bit more uh, open and a little bit more uh, progressive generally, whereas the middle of the state is more like Alabama. So, or, or you know, one of the, not to be too judgmental or stereotypical, but politically speaking, more like the Deep South. Uh, so that you know, we could use some work. We we surely can. Now, tell us about that work, and tell us about, if you would, how being a rabbi informs your work, and even if you get pushback by some of your peers. I don't think I've ever actually gotten pushback from any of my peers. I'm trying to think. I I would hope that they would would be able to tell me to my face um, if if there has been, um, but I I can't think of any. Uh, You know, doing doing this work as a rabbi, it's it's a lot of fun. Um, You know, you were just kind of talking about the the layout of Pennsylvania and kind of you know the different regions, and uh, you know we have a Republican legislature, a a double red legislature. They have the the House and the Senate currently, and so that means to to move anything through the legislature, we need the Republicans. That that these have to be Republican bills supported by Republican representatives. And so a lot of the work that we've done has been organizing in, in those areas and in some of the deepest red areas in the state. And uh, to me, that I'm so happy that I'm a rabbi when I'm doing that work in, in those places because there's a common vocabulary that, that I can lean on, um, the vocabulary of, of the Bible mainly. And that that vocabulary, it plays very well. Uh, 
in most settings, but especially in, in some of these very Republican districts, um, you know, where, where I can, for example, you know, I can have a conversation with the number two conservative uh, legislator in, in the state house, where you know he's telling jokes about the time he met Trump, and, and we're both laughing at Trump and you know, having a good time, and uh, you know, I, I bring up the gift ban, and then he jumps up and grabs his Bible and, and opens to Exodus chapter 19, where Moses's father gives him instructions on um, you know how to appoint non-corrupt people to to official positions, and, and we can bond over that. Uh, so I, doing this work as a rabbi is helpful. I think it helps me kind of transcend some some barriers a little more easily. Uh, but at the end of the day, we all need to be able to transcend the, the, the barriers in our society because we have to make change, and that means breaking down the rural-urban divide, rural-urban-suburban divide, you know, working across uh, uh, race lines, class lines, gender lines. Um, we have to have that moral fusion movement or else no, nothing happens. Um, and, and so being a rabbi, I feel like there's there's a collaborative aspect to, to my education as well. And, and that comes into play, um, being able to organize groups. Uh, and then also, if, if you don't mind me getting too into the weeds here on, on kind of different types of rabbis and, and I'm sorry, different denominations of Judaism. I, uh, I, I'm a, a reconstructionist rabbi. So we're um, one of the smaller denominations within Judaism. And our main difference from the other denominations and, and some of the other denominations are catching up to this difference and are, are becoming more democratic, but it's that we have a, a democratic process internally. So a reconstructionist rabbi isn't trained to make decisions on behalf of a community, but instead to kind of guide an educational process and, and guide the community through a democratic process to, so that you, you can then vote on whatever the issue is for the synagogue. Um, and so that training, I think, really helps me organize well and, uh, and, and do good work in Harrisburg. I, I think about maybe the orthodox segment of uh, you know Juda Judaism, and I think about the really uh, strict. I, I have a, a past with Catholicism, though I'm not a practicing Catholic, Catholic anymore. And I know in both of those groups, sometimes get stuck on one issue or two issues, and they don't give a darn about anything outside of those issues. And if you play to that one or two one of one of those uh, issues that are important to them then they're with you, despite the fact that everything else might contradict uh, what, you, uh, what your faith says is important. And, the, and those single-issue voters, that, that's a very frustrating mindset to encounter because nobody is a single-issue human being. There, there's no such thing. Um, and I, I want to give some props to uh, Pope Francis, who put out kind of— um, an admonition against single-issue voters in the U.S., and then I think he listed about ten other issues that that Catholic voters, you know, might want to consider. Um, and of course, abortion, you know, the usual is still on that list. But then there's, you know, uh, paid family leave and, um, you know, uh, paid time off and, and kind of a more pro-family, uh, holistic type of agenda. Let's um, let's talk about corruption. I, you know, I, I did a little research. I went to your website, nice website, very inspiring, actually. I love the idealism that uh, is espoused. Um, when you talk about, and it, I, it is idealism, but you should have, you know, in my view, you should, that's what you aspire toward and you make it reality, right? Um, Absolutely. When you talk about corruption and getting rid of it, basically, and, and uh, I know you want to speak a bit about something in particular to that end, uh, the, the gift ban, uh, which I, I think is somewhat corrupt. Um, how how hard is it and and how prevalent is it? To, how hard is it to fight corruption from your experience? And how prevalent is it in the political system from your experience, your analysis? 
Oh, it is. It is incredibly prevalent. It's 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 everything. But I mean, to to your point about kind of uh, you know idealism turning it into reality. I mean, that's this work is delusional. You know, you have to be kind of a little bit delusional to even uh, make an effort here. Um, and and I just I just heard a Mike Tyson quote. He said, uh, "Delusion is only delusional when you don't accomplish the goals of making your delusions a reality." So we're hoping that all of these dreams and and delusions of of democracy. Are, are you know in, in a few years not going to be considered delusional because we will have uh, you know achieved our goals. Uh, that is the goal. But the the corruption, I mean, it's it's definitely an uphill battle. It is a very 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 corrupt system. Um, and what I mean by that is the the system itself is set up to uh, favor private interests. It's set up to favor capital. It's set up to favor money. And so there's been over the years, over a few court decisions and laws and a, and a lack of uh, new laws, there's been a system that's been built up where there's a price tag on everything. There's a price tag on a politician. There's a price tag on a policy. There's a price tag on a party. There's a price tag on the lines that shape a district. That We have uh, commodified our, our political system so much so that the, the public sector that is still there is from the top directed toward the private sector, right? The, the, the legislative leadership are so on the take that the business they do, even though they wear a button that says they're a public servant, the business they're carrying out day to day is oftentimes the the, the business of private interests. And it is, it's deep. Um, so how that actually plays out here in PA, we have no limits on campaign contributions. So you can legally cut a $1 billion check to your favorite state senator. Um, and you can also cut a $1 billion check to their opponent if you don't like them, if they're not doing what you want them to do. You can hire them for a, a seven-figure job as soon as they retire. So you can you can dangle enticements in front of them their whole time in office so that they're going to do what you want them to do. You can legally bribe them with gifts, you know, plane uh, tickets and, and vacations and Super Bowl tickets and uh, endless whining and dining. I mean, and, Oh, yeah, it's so bad. <laughs> and you also have the dark money that can come in, uh, which is just untraceable. And then you could have $500,000 show up in a district two days before the election where they print all these nasty mailers and send them out. And by the time people realize they're full of lies, the election's already happened. And so there's just so many ways that this corrupt system maintains itself and keeps itself going. Um, and so the gift ban is, is one that we've been working on uh, for a little while. And we're close. Um, the premise, again, is that you can legally gift anything to any legislator in PA. And it's it's gross and it's disgusting and it's corrupt. And it uh, it feels too relevant to the words of Isaiah, who once said, uh, you know, your rulers are, are rebels, partners with thieves. They chase after bribes. The widow and the orphan's cause does not come before them in the sense that as we have these legal gifts, the people who need help are not being seen. They just don't get seen because our, our legislators are too busy being wined and dined. And so we're hopeful to get this bill through in the next few weeks, actually. Um, we've gotten it through committee. We had to knock out a committee chairman who was a white nationalist. We had to uh, retire a speaker of the House. Um, but here we are. <laughs> all, all, the, all the things are lined up. And if everyone keeps their word, we should have a gift ban in a few weeks in Pennsylvania. I, I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second. Uh, people would say all the money is 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 freedom of speech, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean that that's what the Supreme Court has decided. Um, Why shouldn't these people be allowed to exercise their beliefs through their money? Uh, a few reasons. So one is you just kind of take that same situation and just move it one step to the side and see what it looks like. So imagine that you're in a courtroom and you have a dispute with your neighbor over 
you know, a tree on the property line or something, and you're both there, and your neighbor walks up to the judge before the hearing starts, hands them an envelope and winks at them, and then goes and sits back down. You're not going to trust anything that that judge says. And that's why we don't trust anything that our legislators say, and we don't trust anything that they do. Because when that happens, even if you don't know what's in the envelope, or even if you do know what's in the envelope, it really doesn't matter. Because there's some sort of bond that's been created between your neighbor and the judge through that whatever it is that makes it so that you're not going to trust their decisions. And then also, if you think about money as speech, you know, if money is speech, then speech isn't speech anymore. Because somebody with a lot of money can just build themselves a giant bullhorn, you know, not literally, but spend billions on ads or really just run the Mike Bloomberg uh, campaign playbook and just, you know, flood the market. I mean, you can do that with that much money. And then all of a sudden, everyone else's voices don't really count. They don't really get heard anymore. And you end up with a small group of billionaires and millionaires who are speaking so loudly with their money that there's just no, there's no room for anyone else's voice to be heard. And uh, the thing I have to ask you, uh, as a man of um, uh, obviously uh, interest in wisdom and ethics and more morality, how do you deal with the fact that so many of our fellow people in this country, I don't even like using the word citizens because it's somewhat judgmental too as to who should be allowed into the conversation, but so many of the fellow our fellow people in this uh, country seem to like 42 percent right uh, last poll to support the guy who's in the white house now who is all of, is dripping with all of these negative aspects of of what we could you know how we could behave that you just described corruption and and uh you know money being the the means by which you have your influence, uh, things of that nature. How how could you, how, how do you deal with that reality? That for, 42% or so, 40%, let's say, of, of our fellow citizens, fellow people in this country don't seem to be bothered. Yeah, I mean, that's our reality. That, that This is the world that we live in. Um, so I've, I have not met that many people who really love our president more than they fear the other. And, and it's that, that fear that kind of drives our political system, right? I, a lot of voters vote out of, I don't want the other person, but I'm not necessarily happy with the person I have now. Then there's definitely, within that 42%, definitely some cult members, definitely some people who, who are enthusiastic, um, and, and that is sad. Um, but then, you know, I, I look at stats that, that show things, you know, that uh, campaign finance reform polls in, in the low 90 percentile, you know, it, it polls very well. Um, ending gerrymandering polls very well. All of these issues that we fight for, they, they really pull 60 to 90 percent or so across all barriers of division. Um, and if you ask the, the question in its most basic uh, setup, you know, do you think we need to fundamentally overhaul our elections? You get in the mid-90s on that one. Um, and then I, I think another key stat that gives me some hope, or at least doesn't give me hope, but it explains the situation we're in, is, is looking at public trust in government over the last few decades and, and kind of following that trend line. Um, in the early 60s, the uh, I think it was Gallup started asking the question, do you trust your government to do the right thing all or most of the time? And in 1964, that uh, 78% of us trusted our government, 78%. Mm -hmm. um, today, that, that number is below 15%. Uh, it's, and it's just a slow downward trend. And so I, I don't see um, people... 
I, I like to not think about Trump voters as being enthusiastically pro-Trump, but as being people who are incredibly fed up with the system. And uh, I see also the, the biggest voting block in the country are the non-voters. And, and that, that's a demographic that we work with a lot because they are incredibly frustrated with the system. And that frustration is, is something that we can work with and, and channel toward more productive action. Um, and so I, I, I try to kind of you know, feed off of that, not necessarily walk up to a Trump supporter and make them defend Donald Trump and everything he's ever done, because nobody can do that as, you know, nobody wants to defend Joe Biden either. You know, no one wants to be put in a position where they're defending politicians because these are incredibly fallible human beings. Um, so, you know, walking up and, and trying to, to find issues of common concern and, and work on that front. Um, and I've seen a lot of success with this across Pennsylvania. You know, we've we've had events where, where there's people sitting in the front row wearing Scott Wagner shirts um, and, and for your listeners who might not know, Scott Wagner was our, our very Trumpian gubernatorial candidate a few years ago. Uh, and, and, you know, they're just nodding along with everything we're, we're doing. Um, that there's just a lot of common ground over the question of, do you trust your government? And that, that, that's, the, that's the space where we work. I want to ask you a bit about some of the, the uh, major roadblocks to the progress that you're, you're trying to uh, make and and you know I guess you believe that you can overcome them otherwise you wouldn't be doing it so that was another part of the question let's just what are some of the major roadblocks the money is it is it pretty much the money or is it the apathy that you mentioned or something else as well yeah, and, and he said that I, I must believe that we can overcome them, which again brings delusion into the conversation <laughs> because I, I think there's, that, that's at play. Um, you know, I think Don Quixote thought he could conquer windmills, and, and <laughs> look at what happened to him. <laughs> so uh, we're yeah. still talking about him, though. Right. It was it was a valiant effort. Um, the roadblocks are are many. Um, the just the institutional strength of, of the corrupt system. I mean, these people are are dug in and they've been doing things a certain way for a long time. Um, Harrisburg is a very incestuous town. The, the head of the lobbying firm used to work for the head of the Senate, whose wife is also working at the other lobbying firm, whose sister works at the other one. And it's a very small town in that sense. And so you're, you're playing with um, people whose identities are very much wrapped up in the system. And Breaking that identity in a productive way is, is probably one of the biggest roadblocks. Uh, what I mean by that is that, you know, politicians, lobbyists, they, they wake up in the morning and they look in the mirror and they tell themselves a story to get through the day. And that story is not everything I'm doing is corrupt or most of what I'm doing is corrupt. If that's the story you're telling yourself, you're not going to be able to get through the day. And we're going in there and saying, hey, this place is really corrupt. And you get that defensiveness, you get that their own psyche defending itself from this new reality that you're trying to make them see. Because if they do see that reality, it's going to change their lives. They're not going to be able to go to the same dinners. They're going to lose some friends. They might lose their seat in office if, if they do what we're asking them to do. Um, there's a lot to lose. And so they are very much protecting themselves from that type of realization. And, and that's a huge, huge roadblock. And so it, the, the lobbying aspect of our work involves a lot of compassion. It involves a lot of pastoral work where, you know, the legislators are saying things to us like, I've literally never considered a, a campaign contribution to, to be anything nefarious before. That thought's never crossed my mind. Um, and now that it has, oh, crap, I have an election coming up. What, what happens? I don't want to fundraise. I really don't want to do this. Um, so yeah, that, that mindset is really tough to overcome.
and, and how you do it is is compassion. It's listening. It's it's forcing the encounter. It's staying you know present, staying with them, not letting them you know no rest for the wicked. You, you don't give them an inch. <laughs> you really stay on them. Um, and, and then uh, you know getting past the the leadership who who really emerge as the real obstructions in the legislative process. That takes a lot of direct action. That takes a lot of um, you know making them defend that which is indefensible, uh, making them defend issues that pull very well across party lines. Um, they, they don't want to be in that position oftentimes. And so just really pressure. I mean, pressure is how you get through any roadblock. You just, you just stay at it. Just keep going. The Biden campaign is doing just that. When you go on, on a national level, that, that's exactly what they're trying to do is uh, say, how could, how could we accept this, these, these evils? How can we accept this behavior uh, and, and try to convince the voter not not uh, the people in the Trump White House to change, but the voter to 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 choose a different a different leadership uh, approach and a different I guess the soul of America and all of that good stuff. Uh, we'll see if it works out. We'll see if it pans out uh, in November um, if that message does have some resonance. Now, I I, I wonder if you rely on on a sense of you know these extraordinary people in your mind uh, in, in, when, you're, when you're thinking about what to do next? Do you need some inspiration? You know, heroes, in other words. Can you name any? Do you have any in particular? Oh, I have a lot. <laughs> I don't think we have enough time. Uh, who are some heroes? Um, I'll start with Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. He was a great rabbi, born early 1900s. He died in uh, 1972, 73. Um, and, and he was... A, uh, you know, he marched with King. He was always there. Um, when Dr. King was hesitant to give his um, his speech when, when he came out against the, the Vietnam War at the Riverside Baptist Church in 1967, uh, King was pretty hesitant to do that. Heschel was the guy literally pushing him onto the stage to, to make that happen. Um, Heschel is just a I mean, I've read a lot of what he's produced. He's one of the best thinkers of the 20th century. And he uh, he wrote a book on the prophets. Um, it was actually his dissertation at the University of Berlin. And he turned it in a week before Hitler took power. Uh, and then um, he published it as a book in English, I think, in 1951. And when he wrote the book on the prophets, he, he transformed from an academic to an activist. Uh, by studying their example, it really made him... Um, get out of the library and, and get into the streets. And I've, I've really appreciated that example uh, from him. Um, somebody who very much understood that the message of the prophets and, and the, what you should be doing is, is to be involved in, in the suffering of people um, and to, to take on problems and, and to, uh, to be there um, and, and not to seclude yourself. And, uh, you know, even when, when all hope uh, was lost, there's a story of um, a famous rabbi, Rabbi Arnie Eisen, uh, when he was shadowing uh, Heschel, and we're talking late 60s, early 70s, um, he, he went to shadow him, and he went to shadow him on, on Capitol Hill, and Heschel was just going office to office trying to stop the Vietnam War. Um, he, he knew, you know, this is probably not going to happen today. It's not going to happen tomorrow. But he was just going because there was just so much passion in him, so much care in him, so much compassion that what else are you going to do other than go office to office and try to end the Vietnam War? Because, you know, as Heschel said, what does God demand of us primarily? Justice and compassion. What does God condemn above all? Murder. So how, how would you not try to end the war? And so I, I, I've always appreciated Heschel's uh, thoughtfulness, his, his tenacity, um, yeah. 
Wonderful. And uh, we're just about there. The conversation has, for this go-round, uh, has uh, reached an end. We'll hopefully talk again in the future. I'd love to, to uh, continue hearing about what you're doing. And uh, also, your words are, are quite inspiring. But for now, any, any uh, final thoughts for the listeners? Oh, march on. Keep going. Keep going. And I uh, look forward to talking with you again. Thank you, Rabbi Michael Pollack. It was a pleasure, and uh, uh, we'll see what happens in November. We'll talk, hopefully, right after that, and, and we'll be smiling from ear to ear, perhaps. Sounds good. Sounds good. Thank you very much. Take care. Be well. Bye.
Girls, girls, they will run the world. Girls, they will run the world. My mother said, be independent, and by that she meant I should be able to make my own way in the world, even if I met Prince Charming. Although she died when I was 17, she influenced my approach to life. I graduated from law school in 1959. There were no anti-discrimination laws, and employers were upfront that they did not want a woman. And even if they would risk taking a chance on a woman, they surely would not take a chance on a mother with a four-year-old child. My object, and the object of the women in my class, was to get a job, and that was uh, no mean feat. Judges understood by that time that racial discrimination was odious, but they thought that laws discriminating against women were for the women's own protection. So my job was to let the court see that these classifications more often put women not on a pedestal, but in a cage. A man on the train was reading the New York Post. He held it up and I could see the banner headline, Supreme Court Outlaws Sex Discrimination. I was exhilarated, and it was a great beginning. President Clinton called me late one Sunday evening and said, Ruth, I have chosen you as my nominee for the court. I was on cloud nine. Being part of an institution that's respected all over the world. It's the hardest and the best job I've ever had. Marty and I were married for 56 years. We met when I was 17 and he was 18 at Cornell University. He was the only boy I knew who cared that I had a brain. I think it's essential if women are to have a truly equal chance. Men must care about their home, their children, as much as women do. I hope people will think of me as a good judge who tried with whatever ability I have to interpret the law wisely and to keep it in tune with the people that law exists or should exist to serve. about me, Saunders. You told me to go back home and keep filling those kids full of hoy. Yeah. Just a simple guy, you said, still wet behind the ears, a lot of junk about American ideals. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of junk, all right. Now, look, Santa. I don't know. This is a whole new world to me. What are you going to believe in? A man like Payne, Senator Joseph Payne, gets up and swears that I've been robbing kids of nickels and dimes. A man I've admired and worshipped all my life. I don't know. A lot of fancy words around this town. Some of them are carved in stone. Some of them 
guess the tailors and pains put them up there so suckers like me could read them. And then when you find out what men actually do, well, I'm getting out of this town so fast and away from all the words and the monuments and the whole rotten show. I see. When you get home, what are you going to tell those kids? Well, I'll tell them the truth. Might as well find it out now as later. I don't think they'll believe you, Jeff. You know, they're liable to look up at you with hurt faces and say, Jeff, what did you do? Quit? Didn't you do something about it? Well, what do you expect me to do? An honorary stooge like me against the tailors and pains and machines and lies. Your friend Mr. Lincoln had his tailors and pains. So did every other man who ever tried to lift his thought up off the ground. Odds against him didn't stop those men. They were fools that way. All the good that ever came into this world came from fools with faith like that. You know that, Jeff. You can't quit now. Not you. They aren't all tailors and pains in Washington. That kind just throw big shadows, that's all. You didn't just have faith in pain or any other living man. You had faith in something bigger than that. You had plain, decent, everyday, common rightness. And this country could use some of that. You say I only hear what I want to
Two Rabbits The lawn man with his chemical truck is being reprimanded by a woman holding closed her unfastened, button-down sweater together on a crisp, late summer, early morn. Two rabbits hide beneath a bush waiting to chew a few blades of dew-covered grass. The lawn man is thinking, Lady, you could kiss my... Summer's ends around the bend just flying The swimming suits are on the line just drying I'll meet you there for our conversation I hope I didn't ruin your whole vacation Well, you never know how far from home you're feeling Until you've watched the shadows cross the ceiling Well, I don't know, but I can see it snowing In your car, the windows are wide open Just come on home Come on home no, you don't have to be alone Just come on home Valentines break hearts and minds at random That old Easter egg Ain't got a leg to stand on Well, I can see that you can't win for trying And New Year's Eve is bound to leave you crying Come on home Come on home No, you don't have to be alone just come on home The moon and stars hang out in bars just talking I still love that picture of us walking Just like that old house we thought was haunted Summer's end came faster than we wanted Come on home Come on home No, you don't have to be alone Come on home Come on home you don't have to be alone Just come on home
And there you have it, episode 387 of Troubadours and Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, Rabbi Michael Pollack and director Frank Capra, actors James Stewart and... Gene Arthur, and these musical artists, Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, The Third Mind, The Cannonball Adderley Quintet, Anders Osborne, Lisa Loeb, John Prime, Branford Marsalis, and Terence Blanchard, too. And I'd also like to thank you for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go and try to enjoy this time. Take care.